Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, January 4th, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. The headline from today's paper is Reflecting the Community. New Arts Center Director Page has vision for new collections by Melody Parker. It was one of those eureka moments in Johnny Page's life. Several years ago, the Waterloo Center for the Arts Curator was in Haiti, visiting with Haitian artists and talking up the center's world-class Haitian art collection. Later, someone mentioned to Page that he sounded more like an art center director than a curator. I tucked that little nugget away in the back of my mind, Page recalled. It was the first time he actually contemplated the possibility. Until then, I never really thought about myself in a leadership role as a director. Page, 46, is the new cultural and arts director for the Waterloo Center for the Arts and the City of Waterloo. He replaces Kent Shackle, who retired in June after 28 years at the center, including a decade as director. Page knows he can do the job. He has received a broad, hands-on education at the center and gained a critical understanding of its role, not just as an art center and repository of a remarkable and internationally recognized permanent collection, but as a community resource. He counts Shankel and Cami Scully, former WCA director, as mentors and wants to build on their vibrancy. We're a municipal community center with many events and activities taking place within our walls and on the grounds, and we operate as a city entity. We collaborate with many other groups. I learned how all these groups work together and how the parts fitted together to create this environment, Page explained, adding, I also figured out where I fit in. Shankel viewed their relationship as a partnership, rather than a mentorship when he served as director. Chani was a partner in all we did. He is uniquely poised to continue to pursue the center's mission and bring new things to the table, said Shankel. Not only is Chani the ideal fit, he is also talented and knows the arts, and he is an integral part of the fabric of our community. Page firmly believes the art center must reflect its community. We have a lot of different cultures represented in our collections and in our community. Ours is not a static collection and will continue to add to the permanent collection. Demographically, the Cedar Valley has become home to many different nationalities. When the Haitian collection first came to the Waterloo Center for the Arts in 1977, there weren't a lot of Haitians in Waterloo. Now we have a population of Haitian families who have made the Cedar Valley their home he noted. Today, the Haitian collection is recognized as the world's largest and most significant public collection of Haitian art. As curator, Page traveled to Haiti numerous times and has presented nearly 30 exhibitions on Haitian art. In 2017, he organized the Haitian Art Society Conference in Waterloo. The permanent collection also includes artwork from other Caribbean nations, Latin America, Mexico, Nepal, and the Congo, along with international folk art, American regionalism, and decorative arts, and Midwest arts. Page will strive to get the collection to the community, to educate and entertain. 
I want the program to continue to be vibrant through our programming and events and to grow a broader audience with the Center as a community gathering place. We need to be good stewards for the collection and provide a spotlight for working artists to exhibit their art. It's important to actively engage the arts community and not shy away from the controversial subjects, he said. The Art Center should be a safe space for dialogue and thought-provoking shows. It should be a space for all artists, formally trained or otherwise. We have to be open, mindful, and appreciative. Page graduated with a bachelor's degree in fine arts from the University of Northern Iowa. Working as a freelance graphics designer, Scully hired him to design a new logo and materials rebranding the Art Center. In 2001, he joined the center as a graphics artist. Page later transitioned to digital arts manager in 2005 and became curator in 2013. He has served as a board member for Iowa Arts Council, Experience Waterloo, Youth Art Team, Limelight Arts Cedar Valley, and Friends of UNI's Permanent Art Collection and Gallery. In 2012, Page was an artist-in-residence at the Popo Studios International Center for the Visual Arts in the Bahamas. He and his wife, Erin Maiden Page, have two sons. Page continues to have a passion for creating his own art. I have a love for the process of creating art. At the end of the day, it's about me making space to create art. It's essential to have my own space, my allotment of freedom, he added with a laugh. The next story is titled, Guided by Dyke New Hartford grad, Osage wins eSports title. It's the first state championship for Coach Kyle and team. Dateline, Osage by Jason W. Selby. Head eSports coach Chris Kyle wears many hats. Recently, he led the Osage Community High School eSports team to a state championship, its first ever. He is also in his first year as head football coach. When he is not piloting the Green Devils on the gridiron, he is a math and computer science teacher, the National Honor Society advisor, and a father of Kyle's led the founding of the eSports program five years ago. Two years ago, it became an official school athletic program. This year, it won the title. Kyle graduated from Dyke New Hartford High School in 2007. He grew up on an acreage while his parents worked in Waterloo. They had cattle and chickens, and Kyle did chores like feeding the cows and cleaning their pens. On the farm, he led an isolated existence, especially before he could drive. His closest friend lived 15 miles away. He had a younger sister, Kayla, and they spent most of their time together. They helped their parents clean around the house. I didn't spend a lot of time with my friends because I lived in the middle of nowhere, Kyle said. So I got into video games at a younger age because we didn't have cable TV. That was how I spent free time, that and reading. We watched a lot of PBS. My parents were big on respect. Do what you're told and work hard. Whatever you do, put 100% effort into it. They were really big on school. They went to all my conferences. They were big on doing things the right way, and that is what I try to instill in my kids. Kyle and his wife, Kaylee, have three children, Myla, Emmy, and Theodore. Kaylee is a special education teacher at Lincoln Elementary School in Osage. 
Kyle's first gaming system growing up was a Sega Genesis, and some of his favorite games were sports titles like Madden and NBA Jam. He moved on to PlayStation and Xbox. While he played sports video games, he was also a three-sport athlete in high school with cross-country, basketball, and track. In cross-country, he made it to state. After high school, he graduated from the University of Iowa and taught in Burlington for four years. He has a degree in math education. Recently, he earned his computer science certificate from the University of Northern Iowa. Osage Esports fields more than one team. A team is a group of students who play a specific video game like Super Smash Brothers, which qualified for state and finished fifth in Division II, the middle-sized school class. Forest City won the title in that game. The other fall team played Rainbow Six Siege and excelled. The kids actually took to it to the school board to get that approved themselves, Kyle said. Just because with me coaching football, I didn't want to add another title to the fall, so I said they'd have to take care of getting that approved like I do for the other games. Next, the students fundraised to pay for the title. Once the football season was over, Kyle flipped to his role as eSports head coach. When they took their seats and grabbed their controllers, they made short work of the competition, defeating the much bigger Linmar High School for the state championship. Previously, they had finished second four times. We had a really good fall, Kyle said. Our kids worked together hard. We've also been so close. I was just really proud of the kids because it was one of those titles where, in our first year, none of us had any expectations. They were just excited that they could do it. Last year, all six Osage teams made it to state. One of Kyle's athletes, Logan Mitchell, participates on five different teams. He lets us take care of our team for the most part, Mitchell said of Kyle's hands-off approach to coaching. He's always at our matches, trying to help out where he can. He's very understanding. If you have a problem, just tell him and he'll make it work. The eSports lab in the school, right across the hall from Kyle's classroom, was finished in August of 2022. It is an impressive setup. This room gives the kids a home, he said. It allows us to have a space that's our own. We're thankful to our donors and our sponsors. Each team has a captain, the student with the most expertise. They talk about strategy leading up to a match. With all of his teaching and coaching and parroting, Kyle does not have much downtime. He also helps coach oldest daughter Mila's fifth grade basketball team. He takes his children to the eSports lab and to football practice just to spend more time with them. He teaches them the importance of teamwork. Mila is also a dancer. I think it's just trying to be really intentional when I'm home, he said. Just trying to be dad, not trying to get caught up in some of the other stuff. I try to be at as much of my kids' activities as I can. My wife is a saint. She carries a lot of heavy lifting during the fall. Kyle also is trying to get a middle school esports program started. We want to keep creating opportunities for kids, Kyle said. Page two at the top of the page. Steve Simon receives backlash for his campaign during first Waterloo Council meeting by Mariah Kuyper. Minutes from Steve's 
Minutes after Steve Simon took the oath of office as a new member of the city council, a few residents berated him, resulting in one person being escorted out of the council chambers. Simon won an at-large seat on the council in November against former Ward 2 council member Jonathan Greeter. As the election neared the end, supporters of both campaigns voiced their disdain for the opposing candidate. Simon was sworn in Tuesday and thanked his family, friends, and campaign staff. But the tone of the room changed once public comments began. Brian Helmrichs criticized Simon for how he navigated his way to the dais. As elected leaders, you are expected to answer tough questions, Helmrichs said. You aren't able to run away from them because you deem them unfair or unworthy of comments. Once Helmrichs directed his comments towards Simon, Mayor Quinton Hart stepped in to tell him he cannot make personal remarks to specific elected officials or staff, city staff. Helmrichs kept talking, as did Hart, and most of what was said was indiscernible. Hart said he didn't recognize him as a speaker, and a Waterloo police officer escorted him out of the room. Aliyah Rahman called on called out Simon and his campaign for a controversy regarding Vicky Brown moderating a forum between him and Greeter as a member of the League of Women Voters and the local NAACP chapter. Brown had previously endorsed Greeter as the chairperson of the Black Hawk County Democrats. Simon didn't attend the forum, citing prior commitments. After that forum, a message circulated on social media with comments about Brown as the moderator. The message also included an emoji of a monkey hiding its eyes. Many people, including Greeter, noted that monkeys are commonly used as racist imagery to depict black people. I watched nothing reparative be publicly said about a monkey, image used to reference and question the credibility of a black woman leader even after it was brought to the attention of the campaign, Rahman said. At a certain point, a dog whistle becomes a bullhorn. At the conclusion of public comments, Hart said the election cycle was tough and that a lot of things that shouldn't have been said were said. With the council makeup now set, he added that everyone needs to be held accountable for the work done while in office. We are not going to agree on some parts, he said, but when it comes to treating people right and humane, we need to be able to uh, agree on that because that's what people elected us to do on a local level. Hart was also sworn in as mayor for a fifth term. Dave Boson was sworn in to represent Ward 2 and Belinda Creighton-Smith for Ward 4. Next is Man Dead in Fatal Vinton Shooting. Woman at Rural Home Injured During Incident by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Vinton. Benton County authorities are investigating a fatal shooting over the weekend. Benton County Sheriff's Office received a 911 call reporting that a 59-year-old female had been shot at a rural residence about two miles south of Vinton and was being transported to a local hospital by private vehicle. Deputies responded to to the home and located an 89-year-old man at the residence who also had been shot. The man later died. The investigation is still ongoing and the names of the involved parties will not be released at this time. Deputies said the public was not at risk in this incident. 
Police Probing Crash into Waterloo Home is the next story by Andy Malone, Dateline Waterloo. Police are investigating a hit-and-run crash into a home during the early morning hours of New Year's Day. Officers found a damaged silver 2013 Kia Optima at about 2.30 a.m. Monday outside 307 Oneida Street, where it seemingly ripped through a fence and bashed into the front of the tan single-family home, causing significant damage to the cinder block exterior. No injuries were reported, nor were any arrests immediately made. Police said the driver was not found on scene, and the registered owner of the vehicle was uncooperative. An officer said the Kia, with damage to its front, looked to have taken a turn too fast, and also hit a parked white semi-truck and silver BMW during the course of the events. Waterloo Fire Rescue also assisted on the call. The single-story home, sitting at the corner of North Barclay and Oneida Streets adjacent to Antioch Baptist Church, is owned by R Family LLC, according to property records. The church had sold the home, built in 1927, to the current owner in March, the records state. The next story is titled, Woman Gets Probation for Theft from Employer, by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Waterloo. A Waterloo woman has been sentenced to probation for using her employer's credit card to make thousands of dollars in personal purchases. Kimberly Lavon Rocheholtz, 35, was ordered to pay $22,555 in restitution to A-Line Iron and Metals during sentencing in November. Under an agreement with prosecutors, Rockholtz pleaded to first-degree theft and unauthorized use of a credit card and was granted a deferred judgment, which means the case will be removed from her record if she completes two to five years of probation. Rockholtz had worked for the metal recycling company and had access to the company credit card. She allegedly used the card to pay for hotels, rental car, and other purchases between April 2022 and March of 2023. Next, we have Woman Arrested for Damaging Building by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Cedar Falls. A Cedar Falls woman has been arrested for allegedly damaging an apartment building on Monday morning. Residents at 803 West 20th Street called police around 9.20 a.m., after the woman pulled rocks from a nearby wall and punched a hole in a hallway wall. She allegedly told residents her children were in the wall. Officers didn't see any children in the walls, according to police report. Damage was estimated at more than $2,000. The woman, identified as 39-year-old Caitlin Ray Fabro, allegedly struggled with police and was arrested for second-degree criminal mischief and interference. Court records said she has no connections to the apartment building. Fabro also was arrested for making a false report on December 21st for allegedly calling 911 multiple times to make a false kidnapping report. She is also awaiting trial for burglary for a December 2nd incident where she allegedly tried to pry open the back door of a home on West 3rd Street with a crowbar. Next is Woman Gets Probation... Oh, I'm sorry, I read that one. The next one is Man Arrested for Allegedly Selling SUV That Wasn't His by Jeff Reinitz, Dateline Waterloo. 
A Waterloo man has been arrested for allegedly selling a vehicle that wasn't his. Police pulled over a 2010 Ford Escape that had been reported stolen in December. People in the Escape said they purchased the vehicle from their neighbor in November and showed police a bill of sale they received. Officers interviewed the neighbor, who said the vehicle belonged to a female acquaintance, and she left it at the apartment complex where he lived. The neighbor told police he got tired of seeing the vehicle in the parking lot and sold it, telling the buyers it was his, according to court records. Officers arrested Dale Wesley Ulfers, 48, for second-degree theft December 26th. He was released from jail pending trial. Now we turn to page three and <clears throat> this story. Grassley's donate memorabilia and fund professorship at University of Northern Iowa by Angela Sturm McLaughlin, Dateline Cedar Falls. The University of Northern Iowa will house the papers and other historic data related to U.S. Senator Charles Grassley's time in the Senate. It was announced Wednesday. In addition, Grassley and his wife Barbara will endow a professorship in the Department of Political Science. The gift makes UNI the repository of artifacts spanning the entirety of Grassley's political career. The Rod Library already houses Grassley's political papers from his time in the Iowa House of Representatives and the U.S. House of Representatives through 1980. Now, all the materials related to his time in the U.S. Senate will reside at the university upon conclusion of his service there. Donna R. Hoffman, Ph.D., has been named the Chuck and Barbara Grassley Professor of Political Science. Hoffman is a nationally known scholar of presidential rhetoric and teaches courses on American political institutions at the university. As the Chuck and Barbara Grassley Professor of Political Science, Hoffman will provide programming to UNI students and the broader community related to her scholarship on the importance of Congress and public service. I am honored to be named the inaugural Chuck and Barbara Grassley Professor of Political Science. Senator Grassley's commitment to public service is longstanding and has its roots at Iowa State Teachers College, now the University of Northern Iowa. Senator and Mrs. Grassley's gift confirms their trust in our commitment to preparing the next generation of public servants and citizens who understand that the continued functioning of our democracy isn't automatic but requires concerted effort and education, Hoffman said in a news release. We hope scholars and students will use my Senate papers as part of their research and teaching. With this gift, we hope to support the teaching and research mission of the University of Northern Iowa, allowing scholars and students the academic freedom to explore American government and public policy, said Grassley. It's more important than ever that students learn to rigorously analyze political issues and develop the ability to discuss them with others, including those with whom they disagree. We are most grateful for Senator and Mrs. Grassley's time-honored commitment to the University of Northern Iowa, said UNI President Mark Nook. The gifts of papers and endowed professorship are a tremendous testament to the value of our mission to educate curious and engaged future leaders committed to public service.
The gifts also create a unique opportunity to build a lasting tribute to Senator Grassley's distinguished career and lifelong commitment to civil education and public service. Grassley has held public office since 1959 when he was elected to the Iowa House. He graduated from UNI in 1955 when it was known as Iowa State Teachers College with a Bachelor of Arts degree. He received a Master of Arts degree majoring in political science from the university in 1956. He became the most senior member of the Senate a year ago after Patrick Leahy decided not to seek another term in 2022. Next is this story titled Cedar Falls Council to Consider Slate of Possible New Projects in Next Five Years by Andy Malone, Dateline Cedar Falls. The City Council signaled a willingness to consider some possible big projects during its first session of the new year. Roger Birdsall Memorial Park improvements and Iowa Highway 58 Green Hill Road intersection transformation and a replacement fire truck are among the larger undertakings on the city's draft capital improvements program for fiscal years 2024 and to 2029. The proposed document, which helps guide spending for future projects not directly related to day-to-day operations, was presented to the Council in Committee Tuesday following preliminary meetings in November and December. Council members gave unanimous consent to put the document, commonly referred to as the CIP, on the January 16th agenda for final approval. The committee meeting was the first formal session for the officials newly elected in November. Mayor Danny Lodick, Ward 2 Councilmember Chris Lada, Ward 4 Councilmember Aaron Haubacher, and at-large Councilmember Hannah Chrisman. Two amendments brought the planning document to 217 projects and close to $470 million. An estimated 2.15% increase in property taxes would be needed over the next five years to cover the costs. It's a very small impact because of doing replacement debt, said Finance and Business Operations Director Jennifer Roddenbeck. The council had directed its finance department to remain consistent and not issue general obligation bonds every other year above what's considered the, quote, replacement debt level, unquote. Bonds of $3 million to $4 million are paid off by property taxes levied for debt service, which help keep the fund fairly stable year after year, according to finance documents. No council members voiced outright objections to any of the initiatives included in the document that's reviewed and updated annually. However, questions were asked over the course of the 30-minute meeting. Those touched on everything from high interest rates to the usefulness of one housing conversion program and the economic impact of the potential improvements to Birdsall Park. Last year, the council settled on $438.53 million in planned expenditures over the five-year period after first voting down the document and holding additional meetings to finalize it. That's when arguably tougher decisions, Roddenbeck said, had to be made regarding higher-than-anticipated costs for big-ticket projects like the reconstruction of Main Street and recreational improvements to the Cedar River. 
Additionally, there were big asks from the Cedar Falls Community School District and the University of Northern Iowa for a new swimming facility and UNI dome renovations, respectively, to consider. Roddenbeck said an example of the impact, in the case of the Main Street project, was Union Road improvements from 27th Street to University Avenue being postponed to a later year. She also pointed out past instances when smaller undertakings like new trails and sidewalks had to be pushed aside because of larger projects taking up the city's general obligation bonding capacity. That capacity for single projects went up from $700,000 to $910,000 as part of state law changes to a city's ability to tax, according to Roddenbeck. However, the municipal budgeting process remains uncertain and more challenging overall. The debt service levy right now is not impacted, but I guess you never know. It might be the next levy they talk about. So, again, that's why I think the CIP is important, to have a plan and a tool always looking forward and preparing for what might be coming next, said Roddenbeck. There are several caveats, though when thinking about the capital improvements program. About a third of the total cost burden doesn't squarely fall on the city. Additionally, the document doesn't signal any one project as a done deal. It instead keeps the process in motion. Even if it is approved January 16th, future fiscal year budgets must be approved along with contracts for most, if not all, of the work. In the case of the dangerous Highway 58 Green Hill Road intersection, it's a Department of Transportation construction project for a new interchange in fiscal year 2028. Most of the funding is earmarked from the state. Right now, $4 million in local option sales tax revenue is planned as the city's contribution for a project that could cost upwards of $60 million. Final design has yet to occur. This is not a totally funded project, and my guess is the DOT will come back and ask for additional monies at some point, and that will be up to council whether it wants to entertain those, said City Administrator Ron Gaines. Improvements at Birdsall Park, constructed in 1970 at Birdsall Drive and 12th Street, would cost $1.8 million to modernize and upgrade the fields and overall rundown complex in the time frame of fiscal years 2026 through 2029. About a third of that cost is earmarked for the school district, grants, and private donations. This is actually the first year we've got Birdsall Park as funded on the CIP. It's actually been unfunded for a while, and you'll also notice it's not the full amount. Roddenbeck's. The list of projects includes more familiar proposals already in motion. Following the adoption of the Capital Improvements Program, the Council will discuss its fiscal year 2025 budget in February, and more will be revealed about the proposed impact on the homeowner's tax bill. You are listening to the reading of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, January 4, 2024, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Next, we'll turn to today's obituaries. Catherine Kitty May Dolan, February 7, 1928 to December 31, 2023. Catherine Kitty May Dolan, 95, of Waterloo, died Sunday, December 31st at Cedar Valley Hospice House. 
Massive Christian Burial, 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 6th at St. Edward Catholic Church with burial at Mount Olivet Cemetery. Public visitation from 3 to 7 p.m. Friday, January 5th at Haggerty Weichoff Grarup Funeral Home on West Ridgeway, where there will be a 3 p.m. rosary and a 6 p.m. vigil service. There will not be visitation at the church on Saturday. The Mass will be live-streamed on the parish website, sted.org. James Jim Diller James Jim Diller, 82, of Nashua, died Tuesday, December 26, 2023, at Waverly Health Center in Waverly, Iowa. Funeral services will be at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 2, 2024, at St. John United Church of Christ, Pleasant Hill, rural Nashua, with the Reverend Drew McComb officiating. Interment will be at 1.30 p.m. Wednesday, January 3, 2024, at Oak Hill Cemetery in Lansing, Iowa. Friends may greet the family from 10 to 11.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 2, 2024, prior to the service at the church on Tuesday. Gloria E. Teven. Gloria Elaine Teven, 84, of Waverly, passed away December 28, 2023. Memorial services will be at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January 6, 2024, at St. Paul's Lutheran Church, Waverly. Visitation will be from 4 to 6 p.m. on Friday, January 5, 2024, at Kaiser Corson Funeral Home in Waverly. Lawrence Al Alfred McNamara, Lawrence Al Alfred McNamara, 83, of Waverly, died Sunday, December 31, 2023, at the Shell. Rock Health Care Center. Funeral services at 10.30 a.m. on Monday, January 2024 at Heritage Global Methodist Church in Waverly with the Reverend John Hennings officiating. Visitation from 2 to 4 p.m. on Sunday, January 7th at the Kaiser Corson Funeral Home and for an hour prior to services Monday at the church. Online condolences may be left at kaisercorson.com. Lorenz F. Behrens September 23, 1932, to December 24, 2023. Lorenz F. Behrens, 91, a former resident of Eldridge, Iowa, died on Sunday, December 24, 2023, at the McLean County Nursing Home in Normal, Illinois. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, January 5, 2024, at Faith Lutheran Church in Eldridge. Burial will be at Mount Joy Cemetery in Parkview, Iowa, where military honors will be conducted. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. on Thursday at Chambers Funeral Home in Eldridge and from 10 to 11 a.m. Friday at the church. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to Camp Courageous, the Hoover Presidential Library, or Faith Lutheran Church. Mary Louise Wagner Mace August 4th, 1947 to December 31st, 2023. In loving memory of Marie Louise Wegner Mace, a cherished mother, wife, sister, aunt, friend, and grandmother from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, who passed away December 31st, 2023 in Savannah, Georgia. A memorial service for Marie will be organized sometime in the summer of 2024 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Arlene I. Pippert. January 4th, 1933 to December 28th, 2023. 
Arlene I. Pippert was born on January 4, 1933, in Tama County, Iowa, the daughter of Lester and Luella Bottle Tomlinson of Traer. The funeral will be on Monday, January 4th, excuse me, Monday, January 8th, 2024, at 10.30 a.m. at the Dysart United Methodist Church. The visitation will be on Sunday, January 7th, 2024, from 2 to 4 p.m. at the Dysart United Methodist Church. The burial will be in Dysart Cemetery. Overton Funeral Home is assisting the family. Marion Douglas Doug Tyndall II, February 14, 1978 to December 26, 2023. Marion Douglas Doug Tyndall II, 45, passed away December 26, 2023, following a brief battle with cancer. In honor of Doug's memory, his wife suggests donating to one of the following causes that Doug cared about. PTSD Foundation of America at ptsdusa.org, The Innocence Project, and that is innocenceproject.org. A celebration of life will take place during the spring of 2024 in Rock Falls, Illinois. Now we turn to the sports page and this story titled, Unheralded Record Breaker. Cedar Falls alum never anticipated storybook career at UNI by Ethan Petrick. Dateline Cedar Falls. The kick sailed through the uprights with nine minutes and 11 seconds remaining in the fourth quarter as Northern Iowa attempted to rally late against North Dakota State. Though he did not know it at the moment, Matthew Cook realized as the seconds ticked off the clock that his PAT to cut the Bison lead to 47-27 to would be his final kick as a Panther. Cook described the final moments of his career at UNI in bittersweet terms. It was sad, but I was fulfilled, Cook said. I did everything I could for UNI. When Cook joined UNI after an all-state campaign as a senior at Cedar Falls High School, he did so without expectation. Despite making 54 of 56 PATs and the 14 of 16 field goals, Cook fielded minimal interest from collegiate football programs. In fact, Cook said he nearly elected to attend college as a traditional student, but received a late offer from UNI to join the football program as a walk-on. Cook described the opportunity as providing a little bit of relief and a bunch of excitement. When I was coming out of high school, I did not have any schools that wanted me, Cook said. I got here because my high school coach played here and knew Coach Farley and sent him my tape. He was like, all right, we will at least let him come and be a walk-on. I did not have any schools that wanted me to come kick for them. This was my only option. Cook is glad you and I was his only option. When you get to play for your hometown school, represent a team that you grew up watching, it was an amazing feeling, Cook said. There was a lot of responsibility on my shoulders since both of my parents went to UNI. My grandparents being such big fans, I wanted to make them proud. After signing with UNI during the late signing period, Cook immediately turned his attention towards making his grandparents proud and readied himself for the next level. Cook said he hit the weight room more than he had previously and just started grinding. With his nose to the grindstone, the hometown product completed the UNI-provided workout plan 
and reported to the team in May of 2019. I did not really have any expectations, Cook said. It was just me going out and playing a game. I had been doing that. I was kicking for four or five years at that point. To me, it was just doing what I normally did. I did not really have any expectations or pressure. I did not expect to play or expect to be a contender. I just went out there and did me. Although UNI's 2018 starting kicker, Austin Ertham, exhausted his eligibility the season prior, Cook harbored no expectations of playing time early in his career with the Panthers. In total, the program rostered four kickers at the outset of the 2019 season, including Sam Drysdale, who hit 17 of 21 field goals in 2017 and missed 2018. However, it was Cook who won the top spot on the depth chart out of camp and opened the season as the starter. He did little to shake the notion that he earned the job, going 4-4 with a long of 50 yards in an overtime loss to Iowa State in the 2019 season opener. Cook remained the starter for the rest of the season and earned all MBFC first-team honors as a true freshman, going 19 for 24 on field goals and 36 for 36 on PATs. Heading into his sophomore year, Cook said he tried to keep his expectations low, but could not help but set his sights higher. Cook earned his second first-team All-MBFC honor in the abridged spring 2021 season, making all 10 of his PATs and 15 of 20 field goal attempts. Cook never failed to finish on the All-MBFC first team during his time at UNI. A five-time All-Missouri Valley Football Conference first team selection, Cook capped off his career at UNI with 413 total points scored, converting on 86 of 104 field goals and 145 of 145 PATs. He also departed the program as its all-time leader in points scored, passing former UNI running back David Johnson. As he navigates his post-UNI life, searching for an agent, working with other 2024 NFL draft hopefuls, and further refining his craft, Cook looks back on his UNI career with fulfillment. I grew up watching David Johnson, Cook said. I was at Chattanooga for the national championship game. I grew up watching UNI. So to be the leading scorer here was just an amazing feeling for me. I never even dreamt that it would have happened. I just wanted to play for UNI. I am extremely grateful for UNI. They took a chance on me when no one else wanted to. I would not change a single thing in my career here. Also on the front page of the sports section, we have this story titled, Longtime Waterloo West Coach Hospitalized High School Girls Basketball. And it is by Jim Nelson, Dateline Waterloo. Longtime Waterloo West Girls Basketball Coach Dr. Anthony Pappas suffered a medical emergency Tuesday during a practice at West High School. An ambulance was dispatched to the school around 10 a.m. A source close to the situation confirmed in a statement that the ambulance was for Dr. Pappas, saying, This morning, Dr. Pappas experienced a medical emergency at West High. He was able to be successfully taken to the hospital where he is undergoing tests and treatment. Our thoughts and prayers are with Dr. Pappas and those that are caring for him. Pappas is currently at Allen Hospital. 
Waterloo Schools, after conferring with Pappas's family members, released this statement at 5.30 p.m. Tuesday evening. During practice at West High this morning, Dr. Pappas experienced a medical emergency and was taken to the hospital where he is currently undergoing medical treatment, stated Superintendent Dr. Jared Smith. Please hold Dr. Pappas in your thoughts as we await further information from his family. Papa, 69, and a native of Mason City, is one of the most successful girls basketball coaches in the state. He is in his 47th season, 44th with the Wahawks. He won his 650th game last winter and has a career record of 659 to 387. Papa ranks 12th in all-time career coaching wins in the state of Iowa. Pappas has led West to 11 state tournaments, including the past four, and West has finished as a state runner-up three times in his tenure. More than 70 former West High players have played collegiately. Pappas also coached at North Fayette and Mallard. The Wahawks are 4-5 and five this season and are scheduled to play at Iowa City High Friday. In the absence of Pappas, A.J. Cassidy will serve as the team's interim head coach. Now, turning to high school boys basketball, this story is Cedar Falls Tops East by Ethan Petra, Dateline Cedar Falls. The Cedar Falls Tigers managed an 86-38 to home win over Waterloo East in Tuesday night boys basketball action. Senior forward Cade Corbat, who finished second on Cedar Falls with 10 points in the win, said it was good to start off with 2024 on the right foot and improve a 5-1 to one overall. Last game was a little rough against Western Dubuque, Corbett said. We came up with a win, but we were not proud of how we played. We just needed to get things going again, play the way we like to play basketball, get everyone involved. We did a great job of doing that tonight. We have a couple of tough ones coming up, so we have to keep on bringing that to the next few games. Although Cedar Falls ultimately came out on top, it was the Trojans who initially pulled in front, taking a 7-2 lead early on. Cedar Falls head coach Ryan Schultz elected to go for a full lineup change midway through the first quarter, which proved to be the difference in igniting the stagnant Tigers' offense. The platoon of William Gerties, Logan Rowe, Jordan Townsend, and Jaden Kimbrough and Keaton Stieg par sparked a 14-0 run powered by six points from Gerties to put the Tigers in front 16-7 before the end of the frame. According to Corbett, the slow start offensively did not demonstrate Cedar Falls' normal capabilities, but it did allow the Tigers to flex their depth. Coming back, it was a new game, Corbett said. Everyone is a little amped, maybe a little nervous coming back. Have not, not played for a while, but we can come out better than that. I know Coach was not happy with how we were playing initially. But we have so much depth on this team that if we have those rocky starts, I know we can trust everyone on this team to come in and help us out. So we are not too worried about those starts because we have so much depth. Cedar Falls finished the first quarter with a 19-12 lead, outscoring East 17-5 after the Trojans took their initial 7-2 lead. The Tigers rolled that momentum into a dominant second quarter, limiting the Trojans to just six points and scoring 24 themselves. Corbett credited Schultz's defensive game plan for the Tigers' ability to hold East to 3 of 10 from the field in the second quarter. 
Coach did a great job of making sure he told us what our job was supposed to be and what we were actually supposed to do tonight, Corbett said. We know how good of a defensive team we can be, and we can really lock anybody down. He did a good job of emphasizing that and making sure we were shutting the guys down that we needed to shut down. The Tigers outscored the Trojans 43-20 to in the second half to seal the win and kick off 2024 with a win. Gertis finished with a game-high 16 points, shooting an efficient 6 of 7 from the field and going 4 of 4 from the free-throw line. Anthony Galvin and Logan Rowe each added 9 for the Tigers. Dijon Sharkey and Jeremiah Clark finished tied with a team-high 7 points for East. Up next, the Tigers play host to Linmar on Friday, January 5th at 7.30 p.m. The Trojans do not return to action until Tuesday, January 9th with a road test against Des Moines Roosevelt. Now we turn to high school girls wrestling. And this story titled Cedar Falls Takes Team Title. Don Bosco's Irvine wins at Osage. Dateline Osage. Behind three runner-up finishes and 12 overall top six finishes, Cedar Falls captured the 21-team Osage Invitational Tuesday in girls wrestling action. Natalie Blake at 100, Lauren Witt at 110, and Annabelle Roart at 115 all finished second for the Tigers, while Macy Graves at 155 and Briar Ludeman at 190 each took third. Blake lost a hard-fought 2-1 to decision to Bettendorf's Olivia Hernandez in the finals, while Witt lost a 3-0 to match to Osage's Gable Heeman. Roart was pinned by Bettendorf's Taylor Streif in the 115 final. Don Bosco freshman Erica Irvine, ranked number one in the state at 105, beat number two Layla Phillips of Mason City 6-0 in the 105 championship match. Cedar Falls also got a fifth-place finish from Elizabeth Mills at 170 and Anna Johnson at 140, while April Halzer at 120 and Destiny Hepner at 135 were both Sixth. In high school volleyball, DNH star Peyton Peterson shines at Under Armour All American game. Dyke New Hartford senior Peyton Peterson competed at the Under Armour Next High School All America volleyball game Tuesday at the venue on the campus of the University of Central Florida. Aired live on ESPNU, Peterson Peterson led Team Ice with 13 kills in a match that saw 34 tie scores and 13 lead chances, with each of the first four games decided by three points or less. Team Fire, led by Nebraska commit Skylar Pierce's 17 kills, won 23-25, 26-24, 22-25, and 15-9. Peterson, who will play at Louisville next fall, hit 267 for the match, and also had three digs, an assist, and a serving ace. She did not play in the first set, of, first set, but played in the final four. Her 13 kills were second only to Pierce's total. In high school boys basketball, Waterloo Christian defeats GMG on back of impressive showing from senior big man. The Regents defeated GMG 88-58 to on Thursday night behind a 44-point showing from senior big man Drew Wagner. The 44-point game is Wagner's second such scoring performance of the season. Wagner leads the Regents with a 
28.5 points per game and 12.5 rebounds per game. Senior Jared Aronson dished 12 assists in the win, while sophomore Eli Evans scored 20 points. The Regents, who improved to 7-2 and two with a win on Tuesday, host Collins-Maxwell on Friday at 7.45 p.m. And in high school girls basketball, Costello's double-double powers Waterloo Christian over GMG. Regent senior Katie Costello scored 27 points and grabbed 15 rebounds on as Waterloo Christian narrowly defeated GMG 60-56. to Junior Jillian Reisiter added 12 points and 7 rebounds while shooting a 4 of 7 from beyond the arc to help seal the win. The Regents host Collins Maxwell on Friday at 6.30 p.m. And in junior hockey, Waterloo Blackhawks goaltender earns weekly honor. Waterloo second-year goaltender Jack Spicer earned United States Hockey League Goalie of the Week after backstopping the Blackhawks to a pair of wins over Dubuque. Spicer secured his first USHL shutout with a 1-0 shootout win over the Fighting Saints on Saturday and followed it up with a 37-save performance in a 6-2 win over Dubuque on Sunday. Spicer previously won the honor during the 2022-23 season for the week of January 9th. And that does it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Thursday, January 4th, 2024. I'm your reader, Catherine Moyers. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening. Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, 
or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org. I'm getting older. Do I need to worry about falling? Yes, you do. Every year, one in four people 65 and older will experience a fall and many result in serious injury. The majority of falls happen at home, so take a look around. Replace bulbs and add lighting to help you see obstacles. Remove things that can make you trip. Fix uneven steps and floors, and install handrails in bathrooms and on stairs. Consider balance or strength training exercises, which can help with agility. Get your eyes and hearing checked regularly. Changes in your hearing can affect your balance. To learn more, please talk to your doctor about steps you can take to help prevent a fall. You can also visit aarpfoundation.org or medicaremadeclear.com slash falls. This message was brought to you by United Healthcare and AARP Foundation.